The statements expressed in the following program are those of the speaker. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the sponsor, the hosts, and or Olas Media. Olas Media. My authority is born on 40 years of experience uh, in the system. The political mess that we have today, where people don't, they stop talking to each other. There's always a bad apple. There's bad lawyers, there's bad doctors, there's bad nurses, there's bad uh, auto mechanics. There are things that the public isn't aware of that they, the public needs to know. Organized crime, it's cartels, it's gangs, and it's a serious problem. Elections ought to be decided when the most people vote. Welcome to the Politic Daily with Dan Howard. So we're, we're here with Dr. Charlie Munger, physicist and perhaps one of the um, most cerebral uh, thought leaders in the, in the election reform movement, obviously instrumental in passing independent redistricting, California's top two nonpartisan primary, that's just to name a couple. Uh, I'm Chad Peace. I'm a, I come here as a legal advisor to the Independent Voter Project, which that's how we got to know uh, Dr. Munger back when the successful passage of Proposition 14. We're here at the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers Conference uh, for 2022 with a bunch of other election reformers, including those who passed ranked choice voting in Maine, Alaska, uh, Nevada, a number of municipalities. And we're having a conversation about uh, where the election reform movement is today, how it can improve, how we can think better. And uh, thanks for being here, Dr. Munger. If you were to ask me, uh, first of all, what I consider my role in this group, um, part of it is I I stand as sort of an example that change is possible because I've been part of so many political campaigns in California for things that this organization esteems. They esteem open primaries. They esteem uh, legislative districts are not subject to gerrymandering, partisan or otherwise. They esteem having government transparency where, for example, bills in the legislature have to be in print for 72 hours for the legislators to read, people to read, post it on the internet before they can pass them so they know what the heck did, you know what just came out of my legislature I didn't even get a, re- a chance to read it they ruined my school district and they did it overnight and I had no warning that sort of thing so I've been part of all of those campaigns that's one side of it so change is possible the other part of it is is that I'm you know I'm a research physicist by trade so sometimes when you consider weighty questions like here is one system by which we might elect candidates. Here is another system by which we might elect candidates. And sometimes there are subtle virtues and subtle flaws in each one of them, which can only be proved or made manifest by somebody who has a certain amount of math to come back and say, that isn't a problem if you use this system. This is a problem if you use that one. You get some choices to make. And I come here to tell them, you know, some things are important, and you know what what these systems actually do, so they can. Do make you get one choices. choice? Do you get to rank your choices? Oh, well. <laughs> you, actually, this is this is you, in election systems. If it if it's your state, you get to pick one. So you don't, and hmm. at the end of the day, it's like it's like electing a governor. You at the end of the day, you pick one. You don't get to pick a whole bunch. Yeah. Well, I I mean I. I very much obviously value the perspective, not only the perspective, but uh, you, you, you bring an opinion and you bring 400 pages of backup in order to support that opinion, which is a... 300, a, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's four. Uh, well, I, I'm working on it. I've written more on the subject than uh, 
my, my works on these subjects are now longer than Jane Joyce's it, Ulysses, but I hope they're a little easier to read. So to put in perspective for, for the listeners, how cool this conversation is for me and be humbling to be have this conversation for me is I view my role in the association. I mean, I don't share it with a lot of folks, but I was president of the international arbitration team in, in law school. And so uh, what little legal uh credentials I really have beyond having a degree and passing the bar. I like to think I've done a decent job uh, losing voting rights cases, but setting them up for an eventual success is I really valued the arbitration area because it really forces you to put yourself in the shoes. And unlike a traditional adversarial legal environment, um, there's no universal body of law in arbitration, in international arbitration. You're dealing with countries that not only have different laws, they have different theories of legal governance, right? So you have to put yourself in the shoes of the position. And one of the things, you know, I, I see as my role is saying, look, there's folks like, like, like Charlie Munger over here who have not only done the research, they've put their money where their mouth is and have served in significant roles within the party and unless you get together and have the personal relationships, the folks in this space don't understand the fights you've already had with your own friends, right, in order to get <laughs> here, right? And that's some of the hardest part is, you know, of governance and putting coalitions together. It, it's easy to go out and advocate for your position and your friends. The hardest thing is to go back to your friends and say, hey, I know we all think this is the best way forward, but we got to give a little bit here, do something there. I think what you've done, I mean, it's a fundamental change in California that, you know, maybe in 30 years, the more people will recognize how revolutionary it really was. But it's humbling because of your role in that and that without your continued expertise and role and ability to say, hey, look, this is a guy that can go back to some friends that maybe we don't have and and advocate for us. And so I, I'm I, that's why I'm I feel my role and that's why I feel like it's pretty cool to have a conversation here with you. Oh, thank you. It was uh, for the various campaigns we did have to build what was at the time the largest and the most diverse nonpartisan coalition in California history. Some of those things like government transparency. And we want the public should read the bills, the legislature should read the bills. Why we needed a, a con, you know, a constitutional amendment or to, or actually, uh, you know, to uh, force them to do that. That should be automatic, but it was necessary. And so we got, I th I, on that campaign, I think we got every newspaper in California. Another, and plus all of the rainbow coalition of, you know, Democrats, Republicans, nonpartisan organizations, good government organizations. Everyone was for it, except of course the legislature that had no intention of. Uh, <laughs> letting the bills be out because, as one of the, I think the Senate leader at the time said, you know, from his point of view, three days in politics toward the end of a session is an eternity. That's where he got everything important done. But and, and it would all appear in the last few minutes, and the legislature would go home, and the public would be left like gasping fish on a bank, thinking, "What just happened?" And I said, "No, you know, the people don't want that." So. I have a question for you, hmm. right? This I think relates to the whole reason why we do this is what I, what I still struggle. I, I think now I've gotten to the point where I just accept it and realize it's a reality. The reform uh, community has to deal with. Why is it so hard to get the legislature and your own party and leadership to 
to embrace reform because I think if I under, if I think of reform the same way you you do, it's actually good for the parties. It's good for the legislature, I believe, you know, in the long, you know, to restructure the incentives because the legislature and the parties are, are frustrated themselves at the way they have to govern and, and run elections and stuff. It's true, but election changes are difficult because legislators have just been elected into the system that they already have. Um, they've gotten there because they form political alliances, and you come in and saying, well, you know, basically, that may have gotten you elected, but maybe it shouldn't. If not you, then your friend. That there, there may be good people at heart, but they're not very representative of their districts. Uh, so you can imagine, for example, taking the most conservative Republican legislator and the most liberal le- legislature from their districts and just swapping them, right? And, and, and same people, same good hearts, totally unpre- unrepresentative of the people they're supposed to, ele- to represent. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, uh, you get pe- good-hearted people who, you know, they don't realize that their district has changed, times have changed, uh, or they got elected by kind of a fluke, and they never were very representative of their people. And, and they think that they belong in the legislature anyway, and I respectfully disagree. If you don't represent the people you're supposed to, it's time for you to go. And when you reform things to make things more representative, you're challenging these people. Then, of course, you're challenging a few people who are not particularly good-hearted or even particularly bright, and then they really don't like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, change, often change has to come from without, and frankly, the initiative process in California is one of the things that makes it possible to do. Um, but you know, one of the things we're here to discuss uh, is you know, the system. In many states, unlike California, California has a, has a nonpartisan primary. Anybody can vote for any candidate top two go to the go to the election everybody gets to decide between the two those two candidates but many states have partisan primaries where only the republicans nominate a republican only a democrat nominates a democrat and only democrats vote for democrats and then they then they you know this right of center person runs against the left of center person and if you're in a purple state you look you're always saying this is not a choice what happened to the purple candidates and you're told well they died in the primaries because the democrats thought they were too purplish for the democratic party and the Republicans thought they were too purplish for the Republican Party, but they should be the people being elected. And one of my things that I've done on the hundreds of pages you're so kind to mention is analyze all the systems recently proposed uh, for changing the way people vote to try to get purple candidates elected in purple districts. And I came to a very interesting conclusion, which is is that many of the reforms currently being actively pursued actually won't do that. They, they, They won't solve that problem. And some, which are not being actively pursued, but are been actually of greater antiquity and greater, frankly, scholarly merit, would solve that problem. So one of the messages I have to people at this conference and people on this podcast, this is a very consequential thing. If you think, as I do, that the United States Congress and the United States Senate are highly polarized, but the nation, while divided on some issues, is nowhere near as polarized as the people we've managed to set up there to represent us. If you tell me that one will elect purple candidates in purple districts and one will not, then you're basically, that's a stark choice between what kind of America do you want? The one we have? Or some future where, you know, instead of having the the, the parties grinding at each other on every issue, there'd be 20 or 30 uh, congressmen and maybe 10 senators 
who say, I'm from purple districts, so I'm here to vote for policies which the left and the right won't together embrace, but with my votes, we can pass some of the rights policies and some of the lefts, and with my votes, there's some policies of each one that simply won't see the light of day, because we won't vote for them. And I think that would give a government that's far more representative of what the American people, which is purple in the main, really want. And that's a very consequential change. And I'm try trying to tell people when they say, listen to these dry arguments about election systems, it seems all arcane and silly, but I think it's actually a very stark choice, if we can put it that way. The current system of polarized government or a new future where a purple, a pur you know, if it's a purple United States, we get a purple government. That's a big change, and that's a consequential choice. I think there are a few things. The first one is, is that all of these systems of elections that elect purple candidates in purple districts, and rep therefore representative candidates generally, they all feature letting everybody vote. So you, know, you don't have the Republicans in one corner, the Democrats in one co corner, controlling who gets the general election, one. And that's a popular thing because everyone wants to vote, and there are a lot of independents in the United States. Second thing is you, you'll have three, four, five candidates on the general election ballot. Lots of voices competing, and many people want those choices available. And the third thing is just you would rank the choices. You'd say, okay, instead of saying I vote for one person, I think, you know, I really, I just, I hate these terrible choices. I think this guy's really good, but he may not be electable, so maybe I should vote for my second or even third choice just to have a role. He says, that's not going to happen anymore. You just rank them first, second, third, fourth, and don't worry about it will get you a candidate that's actually elected. That's very important. Those are messages which I think people in America resonate deeply with. And if you then tell them, and this is where the choice of method comes up, that's so, so critical, that if it's a purple district, you get a purple candidate elected out of those five. If it's a red district, you get a red one. If it's a blue district, you get a blue district. You get a blue candidate. It's representative of you. And by the way, because you have multiple candidates there, you, you have the opportunity you know, if, to, to choose the right flavor. You know, we'll get a Republican, but this one is on this policy something that a lot of the people like, so that's why we get that Republican elected instead of this one, or this Democrat instead of that one. It's not like that decision was made in the primary by a bunch of people that, you know, that are typically fewer in number and not representative of the whole district. You, so that changes the government a great deal too, because just because you you elect an R or a D, or maybe you know that it, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that on all issues they're going to be with their party. On some issues they're going to be with the people in their district, and that will change the coalitions too, because you then have the prospect of saying if something is meritorious, you put it in the Congress, you get bipartisan support, and we haven't had that in this country for. 20, 30, 40 years on a lot of major issues. You, the, the fraction of the Republicans and Democrats who routinely voted with the other party on some issues has diminished to zero in our government. But there was a time when we had it, and I think we had better government when we did. So I can, I can uh, compliment that in one sense. In one sense, I have a different kind of, a little bit of a different focus from what I think the outside world and stuff is under the you know is suffering under a narrative a very two-sided partisan narrative and one of the things that i think this space can start doing and hopefully uh, uh, does is understand that we focus so much on outcomes who's going to win the presidential election will it be a purple candidate in this case and right now it's not going to be a purple candidate <laughs> is it, you know is it going to be a red or is it going to blue candidate 
think the most powerful thing are narratives. Narratives are more powerful than the outcome because they drive the conversation to the future and the, 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 the outcomes that, that follow after that. Is that I think the reform space needs to get in, elevate itself into the current narrative as these are reforms that not only produce, they may produce different outcomes. It may be the same candidate with different incentives, but more importantly, it changes that two-sided, empty, shallow narrative because when you have three candidates, <coughs> when you have four candidates, when you have a system that rearranges the incentives, <coughs> you can't follow that shallow two-sided debate. And that elevates the level of discourse for the entire public, regardless of who ultimately wins the election. We have better conversations with each other. Oh, you certainly do. One of the rules change behavior. So right now, if, you're a, if you were a libertarian running for United States president, no one's going to pay you the least attention. And in fact, you're doing a disservice to the libertarians who nominated you because you're asking them all to vote for you. And that means that the libertarian influence over which Republican and which Democrat becomes U.S. president has just been reduced by zero by the mere fact you chose to run and, tell, and bring your views before the public. But if you pick the right system, that's no longer true. You can go out there and say, I'm a libertarian candidate. I'm fighting for my principles. I'm on the debate stage. I'm forcing the issue. My people can vote for me, and maybe I'll win this time. Or maybe I won't, but I can tell you something else that will happen. Their votes are just as effective as choosing between the Republican and the Democrat if, on libertarian grounds as if I hadn't run. Uh, their voting block is intact and active, and I'm going to lead it. And if somebody up, the, when they're debating me, if they don't go with the ideas that I, I'm sent there to represent, then I can tell that voting block who to vote for. No, we haven't had that dynamic in American politics ever. And if you're facing a debate opponent who actually can lead a coalition for or against you, against another one of your major opponents that will be decisive in getting you elected, you treat them with <coughs> respect, you treat their ideas with respect, and you incorporate some of their ideas in your party platforms and your aims, which hitherto you've never had to do. And that will really change the, ki the kinds of debates that we have on policy. And it'll change the characters of the people who choose to serve in office, because they're really partisan and confrontational, and everybody's, you know, I don't need you, then suddenly, you, you, know, they, you know, you can lose a presidential election if 2% of the libertarians decide they're all for one candidate now. Right. And that's, you know, th that, that means you treat them with respect, even if you disagree. Tried to create a little bit of controversy, but he brings it back to something I, I, I totally agree with. <laughs> well, sorry. I, I, guess, I guess since people are listening to this. So, but the methods we've put in Maine and in Alaska, this system of using these ranked choice ballots with a system called instant runoff, that keeps the legislature partisan. But a system that's much older and actually simpler to use just the, changes the rule by which you count the ballots and declare a winner. That cures the problem, they're, and their so-called Condorcet methods, after a very remarkable man who fought for democracy in a very difficult time, uh, namely the French Revolution, and he fought for a good French constitution, the General Assembly, he was secretary of the assembly, and uh, the, he was hounded to his death in the French Revolution, and so his works aren't widely known, but the ideas actually go back to somebody who way back then 
in that very perilous time for a nation was looking so far ahead that he said, you know, we can do better than this. And I, and I view that's somewhere up high on the ladder, right? And that, you know, Maine, Alaska are big steps to getting the pub, changing the narrative about how we can conduct elections so that yeah. we can climb up that ladder and, you know, people can start understanding the value of the 300, yeah. 400 pages that you put together right. because you come to the... Absolutely. Once you abolish partisan primaries and make yeah. the general voter the decisive voter instead of whatever small voters in the primary and selected by party at that, big step forward. Once you give multiple choices on the ballot, big step forward. Right. I'm here to sort of say, okay, this is all very well, but there's a cherry on the top Right, that when you, everyone's voted, all the everyone's tabulated, you've ranked all the candidates. Yet at the end of the day, you have to rule to decide a winner. Now, you know, people understand with things that things that they care about that sometimes if you, uh, you know, it matters who do, you do actually you the rule you use to declare the Super Bowl champion affects who actually gets to be champion, and it may be buried in a bunch of text that nobody really is conversant with, but it matters to get right. And the interesting thing, it's, it's such a simp simple idea where you say, you just say, look, if there's one candidate out there that a majority would elect, if only he and one of his rivals were running, doesn't matter which rival it is, a majority wants them for, in that comparison, that's the one you want to have elected. Under any circumstances, get that right. Make sure that when you seat somebody in the chair, the voters haven't already said there's a majority that wants a different candidate. That's a simple rule. But that change, it turns out it has enormous political implications. It's not the rule that we're using currently in Alaska and uh, Maine. And I'm here to tell the reform communities it makes its decisions about what it's going to try to do in the next, next iteration to understand that when they decide to follow the Alaska and Maine models, they're leaving a lot on the table that they could, and they should make a deliberate decision saying, okay, we can only get so much now, so we're gonna go for this. But we understand what we're leaving on the table when we make that decision. I don't want them leaving on the table without knowing that. And uh, I, I don't think we can underestimate, and, and, and maybe maybe yourself don't, don't um, I don't want to use the word appreciate, but you have advanced that conversation. I think there, is, there are so many of the reformers here at this conference that have that and are, and are thinking about when we can when we could take this <laughs> from the table into the actual reforms than would have ever been considering at this point had it not been for you and the education process you've given a lot of us. Well, you can, you can thank the dead of COVID-19. <laughs> uh, li quite literally, uh, my, the laboratory is working, uh, working and was literally basically shuttered for the duration. So there I was alone at home for two-plus years. And I thought, you know, it's these, this sound, looks like a very important issue before the reform community and so forth. And I'm the mathematical guy. At least I can make sure that what they're doing is mathematically sound and the votes work and that they get the outcomes they're expecting when they adopt a, a new system of elections because that's not always true when you have a reform. You have unintended consequences and unforeseen unintended consequences. And I went through the th whole thing and I found this remarkable conclusion, namely that, that good though the system that they're pursuing is, it becomes fabulous if you make one small change, one tiny change, uh, but this is the rule of what you do after you count all the, well, you have all the ballots ca cast. And so, and I, I, I found that quite remarkable, so I, I'm here to inform them of that. But that's actually good news, 
right? That whatever they're pursuing right now in Maine, Alaska, and other places is good. But the good and even better news is, is there's a brighter future beyond that. And whether they reach for that brighter future right now or whether they say that's a brighter future and we'll get there, that's a tactical decision that, that the reform community has to think about. And I've made many, doing the initiatives I've worked on in California, I've made many compromises where I said, this is as far as we can persuade the people to adopt. This is as far as we go in this direction, this pass. This is an imperfect thing, but compromises are sometimes necessary. I've made those decisions myself, so I understand where they are. But I certainly, when I made those compromises, I wanted to be very sure I knew what I was giving up and what it was going to cost me. And sometimes when people ask me to compromise because it would make it too hard to pass or something like that, I looked at it and said, no, that's the heart and soul we're trying to do. I'm not compromising. And sometimes I said, if that's what, the people, if that's what people want, that's what people are going to be scared of, I can make a change. It's not the way I do it if I could just write it myself, but I have to persuade people to adopt it. We're making the change. So I know where they're, the space that they have to operate in, but I want them to know what the consequences are when they make those changes. This is Dan Howell. I'm the executive director and the chairman of the board of the Independent Voter Project, uh, an organization that was founded in 2006 with the intention of empowering independent voters and doing everything we can to give them the opportunity to vote in every stage of the election process. And we've been successful in doing that, and we do it across the country, and we're very proud of it. This episode was produced by Olas Media Podcast Network in San Diego, California, with Elia Ramos as Creative Director, Jessica Garcia as Project Manager, JC Polk as Executive Producer, Lina Alvarez as Associate Producer, and Chad Pease as President and Co-Founder. Welcome to the Politic Daily with Dan Howell. Olas Media.